Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. Michael Anderson. He is Rotman Canada Research Chair in Philosophy of Science, core member at the Rotman Institute of Philosophy and core member at the Brain and Mind Institute at the University of Western Ontario in Canada. His primary areas of research include an account of the evolution of the cortex via exaptation of existing neurocircuitry, that is the massive redeployment hypothesis, and we're going to talk about that today, the role of behavior and of the brain's motor control areas in supporting higher order cognitive functions, the foundations of intentionality, and the role of self-monitoring and self-control in maintaining robust real-world agency. So, Dr. Anderson, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. Okay, great. So, let's start with this question. Uh, what is the best way to understand how the brain evolved? Because uh, I've already talked with some people like cognitive scientists, neuroscientists, and even some evolutionary psychologists. And there's this idea of approaching the evolution of the brain slash mind as a, a bunch of modules. But right. is that the best approach or is there uh, any other approach out there that as more scientific support to it? So I, I, I am not uh, uh, very impressed with the evidence for modular accounts of the brain. That is, by the way, however, still the dominant model. Uh, so that has to be set up front, that um, the dominant model uh, of modularity suggests that the brain evolved by um, evolving a dedicated uh, functional circuitry for various evolutionarily important um, functions, you know, mate selection, um, uh, you know, predator avoidance, uh, things like this. And, um, you know, it, it would be nice if it were so, because it would make the brain easier to study. But at least the evidence coming from human neuroimaging doesn't really bear that, uh, doesn't bear that story out very well. So a lot of my work has been taking very large collections of neuroimaging studies, so thousands and thousands of studies at a time. Now, if you believe in, in a modular brain, you might think that vision is localized back here and language may be here, and of course we have the motor strip in the middle of the brain, and you would expect to find these sort of dedicated bits of the brain for various kinds of, of functions. Uh, if you look at the brain sort of one study at a time, it can create that impression. If you look at the brain a thousand or two thousand or five thousand studies at a time, uh, that impression disappears. In fact, almost every region of the brain is used and reused across multiple different cognitive functions in multiple different cognitive domains. Um, you can quantify how diverse the functional, uh, you know, repertoire of a particular parts of the brain are. I have, I have work investigating that, trying to quantify the degree of diversity, and it just turns out, at least from the evidence we have. Uh, that pieces of the brain are functionally complex um, and, and uh, differential function appears to come not from activating this part, first part of the brain versus that part of the brain, 
but rather from the way that the parts of the brain dynamically interact with one another. Mm -hmm. uh, Go ahead. So, so uh, since you're mentioning that, uh, what about the idea of functional specialization? I mean, does that still hold any water or not? I mean, this is an open question. Um, I, I myself, in, in earlier work, uh, about, about a decade ago now, suggested that maybe the brain, parts of the brain were functionally specialized. They just didn't have the functions we thought they had. They might have some you know, really abstract computational function that we could identify, and we would identify what that was by looking at the various sorts of partnerships that that piece of the brain uh, uh, formed and participated in. I, I'm less sanguine about that possibility right now. I think, I think that parts of the brain are sort of natively multifunctional, and that um, so they have, they have a, a functional repertoire, a complicated functional repertoire, and then in their interactions with other parts of the brain, one or another of these potential functions gets actualized. And so uh, they don't have a single native function, uh, they have a, a, a set of capacities, and then in interactions with other parts of the brain, that set of capacities is temporarily fixed uh, into, into a functionally specialized bit, but then it gets released uh, and then may, may form partnerships with other parts of the brain and, and come to have a different function in real time. And I, again, the, you know, neuroscience is an enormous field, right? So the, the evidence is vast. Yeah. Uh, and I can't say I'm accounting for all of it, but the, the evidence that I'm working with suggests that's a better story to tell about the functional organization of the brain than the modular story is. Mm -hmm. I understand. What about that approach that was prevalent, and I'm not sure if it's still prevalent or not, but the triune brain hypothesis, that is that uh, brains evolve from, let's say, the inside out, and we have the reptilian brain, the limbic system, the cortex. Uh, yeah. Was it really that way? Did brain evolution follow this path? Yeah, I, frankly, I don't know what to think about that. Um, just because once the brain, so there are, you know, I have to understand the so-called reptilian brain or the limbic system, right? The the the, the subcortical structures, cerebellum, and so on. Yeah. Um, you know, as the brain evolved, all those structures got reincorporated into. Um, into the newly emerging structures. So the subcortical uh, parts of the brain are highly interconnected with cortical parts of the brain. Yeah. And so the open question is, you know, how much did that change the function of the subcortical parts, right? So I don't think it's as if there was a fixed function in, in, the, so, in, the, in the subcortical brain and then a fixed function in the limbic system, and then we just threw a cortex on top of that, neocortex on top of that, and left all the other stuff untouched. I, I just don't think that makes much sense, right? You've got massive interconnections between all these parts of the brain. And if, if something like the story that I'm telling is even close to right, the effect of those massive interconnections, you know, that both feed-forward and feedback mechanisms, um, you know, has at least the potential to change the underlying functions of, of parts of the brain. So, you know, uh, you know, does amygdala, is amygdala involved in emotional processing? Yeah, it absolutely is, right? Uh, is thalamus a, a hugely important sensory gateway? Yeah, of course, and that's not going to change. 
there are certain things that do get fixed over time. Um, but the notion that somehow we simply inherited function and left it alone from our evolutionary ancestors, that, that's a bit of an oversimplification, I think, given the dynamic nature of, 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 of brain function. Mm -hmm. So uh, just to get this straight and to see if I understand it correctly, so let's say that we have a particular brain and then over evolution more parts are added to that brain and they interconnect with the more ancient parts, so perhaps the functions that the more ancient parts uh, participated in are modified by the fact that now they're connected to a new uh, brain part, let's say. Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible, right? It, so I recently gave a, a joint talk with, uh, with Paul Chisek, um, who has been thinking lately very hard about what he calls phylogenetic refinement. Like, how should we think about what parts of the brain do over time, you know, in the context of, of uh, individual species behaviors? And the, the story we're developing, and I don't want to put words in his mouth because we're still developing this story, but, but it is that you can learn a lot from looking at our, our phylogenetic tree, right? When did escape behavior become a thing? What about the approach avoid circuit? Um, uh, right? So we, ha we have certainly inherited some kinds of basic functions, but, but I, I think sort of two things, two important things happen as the brain... Uh, got bigger and, and more complex. One is that those basic circuits, approach avoid, for instance, got co-opted to help us manage, say, social situations. So it's not just approach avoid, oh, here's a predator, uh, there's some. There's a potential mate, so one's approach, one's avoid. But now it's, I'm in a social situation. What, what's inviting and, and how do I tell what's inviting and how do I tell what I, I should uh, shy away from? So that's one thing that happens, right? We, we repurpose these old circuits for, for novel behaviors. But I think the other thing, the opposite can happen too, that though as those circuits get incorporated into more complex behavior patterns, the circuits themselves take on a different character. So it's not, I think, I think the story is more subtle than, ah, we've identified the evolutionary function of a particular bit of the brain, and now we know what that bit of the brain does. No, that gives us an important clue as to what, how, you know, what, what function that bit of the brain may have evolved to, to, um, to support, um, and and that gives us an insight. Uh, but then again, so but then it gets put to novel uses, and then the function itself may well adjust given its now uh, uh, placement in a much more complicated functional circuit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so we have the way that each specific brain is organized, so let's say that there's a standard brain organization for each species, for example, and then we have phenomena like neuromodulation, neuroplasticity, even response to damage. So, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, how do we integrate the fact that the brains evolved in a certain way and then they also have these mechanisms to deal with, for example, environmental influences. Right. No, that's, that's a super important um, uh, question because it is definitely the case 
that at least for normally developing animals, we all achieve sort of our species specific functional architecture. Yeah. And one way you can tell that story as, as you began is saying, well, it's because the brain is modular and the modules are built into the genes and the genes express themselves and, and you achieve species typical neural architecture just because uh, of, of typical development. Uh, as, I, as I've been saying, I, I don't think the, the data bear that particular story out, um, but we still have to ask, answer the questions, well, well, then how the heck do we achieve species-typical neural architecture? And I think that the, uh, the story is, is more of an evo-devo, evolutionary development story, and not, not merely a genetic story. And so if, if it is the case, and this seems to, to be the case, that you have sort of highly uh, canalized, uh, highly stereotyped uh, afferents from your sensory receptors. So the, the eyes always innervate the same part of the brain and the ears always innervate the same part of the brain and so on and so on. Then the actual just statistical uh, nature of the inputs to those various systems will tend to sculpt their neural targets in the same way in early development. So you'll get those lovely color pinwheels in, in, in visual cortex, and you'll get this nice topic map in auditory cortex. And that's going to be the same for everybody, because that is largely genetically determined, the afferents themselves, right, where, where those sensory receptors innervate, that's largely genetically determined and highly uh, stereotyped. And then the environment is conserved, right? Next generation is going to have roughly the same environment that, that we have and so on. And that those two things will mean that... Um, the basic functional architecture in the sensory uh, afferents, excuse me, in, the, in, the, in, the, in this early sensory areas will look very much the same for everybody. And as long as that's true, then if the process of reuse um, that I've uh, described only briefly now, but the, if the process of reuse then comes into play and starts putting together pieces in various configurations so as to solve the normal, um, the sort of normal problems of, of acquiring species typical behaviors, um, then you start with the same building blocks. You've got a species-typical developmental pathway, and the and the the, the twin processes of neural reuse and uh, heavy and plasticity will work together, and you'll end up with highly similar, you know, relatively similar neural architectures because you're walking the same developmental pathway with the same basic building blocks, and you're putting them together to solve behavioral problems. Um, and so that's a very evo devo kind of story. This is this is the way that sort of genetic determination and experience um, work together in development. So we don't have to tell the story of neural architecture entirely in terms of genetically specified modules. We can say we have some things that we begin with that are highly stereotyped and share across individuals. And then because we share, uh, at least partially share, our developmental pathways, you should expect that we'll come largely to the same kinds of, as it were, neural solutions uh, to acquiring species-typical behavior. And so that's the kind of story that, that I've been pushing. It's, it's quite different from the typical you know, evolutionary psychology story. Um, and it's important, I think, because if, if the, the story that I'm telling is something close to the truth, that actually gives us a lot of flexibility mm -hmm. right, to deal with changing environments. Yeah. And that's very important. You know, one of the, I think, uh, potential issues with the ecological, excuse me, evolutionary psychology approach is that it seems to imply that uh, development is much more um, restricted. 
Um, and so we, you know, it, it would be hard for us to adjust to changing circumstances. But the evidence suggests that we're actually quite flexible. And the Evo Devo story, I think, better captures that flexibility. Mm -hmm. Talking specifically about uh, neuro, not neuroplasticity, but let's say that a particular region of the brain is damaged uh, as a lesion, and then another part of the brain acquires the function that uh, the other part that is damaged participated in or was responsible for. I mean, uh, those kinds of things occur when people have lesions, at least sometimes. Yes. Uh, but don't, uh, don't those kinds of processes have uh, some limits? I mean, and would those limits be, be genetically determined in some way? I mean, in some way, of course, right? I mean, the, the right? But uh, there are a couple of, of um, ways to under... So, yes, uh, it can be the case that if you have a brain injury that other parts of the brain uh, can can take over the function. You know, if, if you're lucky and you can you can reacquire, uh, say, say you've had a stroke or something, and so you can reacquire the ability to control your arm, uh, and it can't, you know, it will be a different part, slightly different part of the brain that manages to uh, allow you to reacquire that function. If you're lucky enough to to have, um, uh, if you're lucky enough to respond to rehabilitation, um, there are, there are probably genetic limits on how flexible each part of the brain can be. The you know st studies with non-human animals where. So you maybe heard these famous studies where they they uh, innervated uh, auditory cortex uh, with uh, what normally would have innervated visual cortex, mm -hmm. uh, and so they just fed basically visual information to auditory cortex, and and lo and behold, uh, the auditory cortex took on a lot of the characteristics that you would normally see in visual cortex, uh, and indeed these these ferrets were were. They weren't didn't have perfect vision, but they had functional vision, and so that implies a lot of flexibility, right? It's not as if the only thing auditory cortex can do is allow you to hear things. Uh, if it gets these early inputs um, from different a different sensory modality, it will adjust to process those, and so that that suggests that um, you know there's just a, a great deal of functional flexibility across the cortex. And, and that's what's coming into play uh, post-injury uh, when, when someone uh, you know, is able to, to come back uh, through rehabilitation. What, what are the limits on that? Well, we, we know not everyone recovers. Uh, why, those, why that is could have a, a lot of different explanations. One explanation apropos of the stuff that I've been working on is that because parts of the brain are, I think, multifunctional in an important way. Um, there's, so there's a concept in evolutionary biology called burden. So uh, you can't, not everything that could in theory change over evolutionary or developmental time is free to change because it may be required for a particular function that you don't want to disrupt. So one of the limits um, on the ability to repurpose bits of the brain for other things is it just might be, as it were, too busy. <laughs> it's too involved, it's too burdened by all the other stuff that it's doing. 
And so, and, and by the way, every time you act, you're reinforcing the circuitry that allows you to act, right? So, so if you're behaving, um, even if you've lost a particular function, if, if you're exercising a bunch of other different behavioral functions, that may be reinforcing the particular neural, uh, the particular circuitry. Um, and so if you're constantly reinforcing its, its current configuration, you're not going to be able to repurpose, repurpose it for anything else. So that's one important source of limitation on plasticity, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, so... You mentioned that uh, there were some studies where basically the auditory cortex took the function that was previously hold, held by the visual cortex. I, I mean, I've, I, I remember reading about that and I mean, I, I, if I remember correctly, and please correct me if I'm wrong, isn't it the case that in that specific example, that occurs because the kind of stimulus that the visual cortex processes has some similarities to the one that the auditory cortex normally processes, that is, that uh, visual stimuli are somewhat in some ways similar to auditory stimuli like for example both are three-dimensional or something like that I mean I, I might be wrong here but it's just what I remember reading I mean they clearly both operate uh, spatially yeah right um, yeah. what was what, so they have that in common uh, other than that though they're really quite different right You've got um, normal. So if you if you put normal uh, auditory input into auditory cortex, what will happen is it will induce a tonotopic map. So you'll have uh, a map where it's basically arrayed by frequency. And so each uh, neighboring piece of the brain will be responding to a different frequency of the input. Yeah. Uh, although there is a frequency, of course, in in, in visual input that that specifies color for us. Um, you don't. One thing that, that might have happened in this experiment is you would got you could get a frequency map, right? But it wouldn't be tonotopic, topic. It'd be say um, uh, uh, something more like um, something more like you know a, a, a color frequency information. But that's not what happened. What in fact happened is you you got uh, uh, organizational structures, complicated ones like color pinwheels that normally would have been induced in visual cortex. And so the architecture of the region changed quite radically, and it changed quite radically because the input itself is quite radically different. Mm -hmm. um, even though it does share some, some character such as, you know, at least in perception, such as, you know, its, it's spatiality. And so um, I think what's different, you know, had they been really similar, you would have expected it to induce similar structures, but of course it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Structures that get induced by the input are quite different. And again, what was striking in this case is that, and, and the question was, you know, back to the genetic issue, the question was, okay, well, if auditory cortex is genetically determined to look a particular way, well, then it should look that way no matter what we, we put in there. But that wasn't true. Experience drove the organization. Um, and, uh, yeah, and as far as I know, no one has done the opposite and tried to get uh, tonotopic maps in visual cortex, but the hypothesis would be you should, would be able to do that as well. Um, if you if you did that particular surgery, it's important, by the way, that you know these were neonatal 
uh, animals, right? And so they hadn't had, uh, you know, much experience. So, so things were highly plastic because it was very early in their development. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, still about neuroplasticity, do we know if it occurs over the entire lifespan of a particular individual? I, I don't know if you want to focus on humans or other species, but do, do we know uh, anything about that? Yeah, I mean, the evidence is that, that neuroplasticity remains throughout the lifetime. It, it's, uh, but it's also the case that, um, you know, uh, I think I, I'm not a biologist, so, so I don't want to make a, a sweeping generalization. But um, for the most part, the, you know, the, the early in development is the most plastic time, and, and, and later in development, uh, things get less plastic. And, and the question is just what is the relative contribution in the, the slow of plasticity because of simple age-related factors, like, you know, maybe the brain just isn't able to be as plastic later in life as it is in, in very early life. Or, uh, and so that's probably part of the story. And I think another part of the story is this notion of burden that I mentioned a bit ago, that you know, once a part of the brain is doing a bunch of things, then changing it is going to be disruptive. And it's constantly being reinforced because you're, right, you're, you're, you, know, you behave, you're behave, you do a whole lot of different things throughout your day. And, and that continually ex exercises and reinforces the architecture uh, that you've achieved, uh, your brain architecture. And as long as that's reinforced, it's going to be hard to repurpose those things for other other things. So it might not be um, an issue with a, a native loss of plasticity. It may be because those parts of the brain are already, you know, functionally involved in such a way that the plasticity would be disruptive. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we know what the relative contribution of those two uh, possibilities are for the observed uh, decrease in plasticity over time. Mm -hmm. What about the regenerative power of neurons? Because until recently, I mean, I even remember studying these like 10 years ago or so when I was still in college. I studied a bit of neurology and back then people were still saying, or at least the textbooks were saying that uh, neurons had no regenerative power whatsoever, but it seems that things have changed recently, right? I think that's right. I, I'm no expert in that in that area, but but the evidence does seem to point to the um, the the you know the lasting capacity for for the, the to the brain to to regenerate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, I've asked you about the evolution of brains. You have an hypothesis that you talk about in your work, the redeployment, um, sorry, I have the name here, the, redeploy, the massive redeployment hypothesis of brain evolution. Yeah. What is it about? So, you know, this is, that's what it's, I've been calling it neural reuse now instead of massive redeployment hypothesis, but it, it grows out of the same idea. And the idea here is that, you know, uh, neural tissue is the most metabolically expensive tissue in the body. So it's, it's precious in that, in that sense. And so you might imagine uh, that you, as in the modular hypothesis, that what you do is you 
uh, you sculpt each bit of the brain into a specialized uh, uh, processor, um, and and that's how you uh, achieve behavior. That looks to me like a fairly inefficient use of, of really precious resources. You can also imagine uh, that what you do is you have a mechanism whereby uh, each part of the brain is um, a participant in multiple different neural coalitions. And so differential function comes from finding the right coalitions for each of the parts of the brain to participate in. And that gives you uh, a lot more flexibility and allows each part of the brain to participate in multiple uh, functional partnerships. And that's a much more efficient use of the, uh, of the neural tissue, I think. And so that's the idea behind the massive redeployment hypothesis or neural reuse. It's that each part of the brain is used and reused across multiple circumstances. Um, but under each different circumstance, it participates in that function with different partners. And so uh, the, the process, what, what, what reuse does as a developmental process is it's a process of, of uh, discovering and consolidating the right partnerships for particular behavioral acquisitions, behavioral and cognitive acquisitions. So you find you find which parts of the brain put together in the right sort of way will allow you to you know learn to play the piano or 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 learn algebra or, or whatever it is that, that that you're you're attempting to do. And having found that those partnerships, you sort of consolidate those networks down. Um, but you know in in acquiring say the ability to do algebra, you don't have algebra dedicated parts of your brain. Right? You've got uh, parts of your brain that sometimes do help you do algebra, other times help you do things like uh, 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 sense your fingers, other times help you do uh, other, other things. So, so each part of the brain is, as I say, used in multiple different circumstances, and, and that's a much more efficient use of metabolically expensive tissue than dedicating it to a very particular, say, behavioral repertoire. Mm -hmm. So if this hypothesis is true or proves to be true, does it have any important implications for how we understand cognition? I think it has important implications. Um, well, so for how we understand cognition, maybe. Uh, this is an open question, I think. So and it gets back to the question you, you asked a bit earlier. Uh, about you know what happens when say ancient uh, evolved circuits get used in a different uh, situation? How, how much? Uh, it's an open question. How much of the character of that circuit, uh, uh, as it were, shows up in the new in the new uh, in the new process in which it's become a part? And so, um, and I don't think there's a general answer to that question, right? So. I've done some work with with a, a colleague here in, in London, uh, Marcy Penner. So she's a, um, a cognitive psychologist and studies math cognition in particular. Um, and uh, there's an interesting finding that uh, there's, so there's a, a task called finger nausea, finger finger awareness, and and you test it by if you if you take a child and hide their hand from view and you touch one or more of their fingers and then ask them which fingers were touched, you know, they can, they can say. But there's actually a, a, quite a bit of variation in how good kids are at this. And it turns out that the kids who are better at this task are also better at math. Mm -hmm. And so that's interesting. So why is that? Um, the explanation that, that we came to was that, well, there's a part of the brain that, is, that helps you uh, 
solve the finger nosia task. Uh, and it also gets incorporated typically into uh, tasks involving number, so basic math tasks. And so the, the sort of better differentiated or the better developed that particular bit of the brain is, the better you're going to be at both of these tasks because there's this, this, this circuit that gets shared between these, these two different complexes. Now, does, does that tell us something about what it is to do math? This is a really interesting question, right? Uh, people say, well, that happens because kids count on their fingers. And, and why should we turn that around? We say, well, no, actually, that's just what makes it natural to count on your fingers when you're doing math. But it's not counting on your fingers that causes this to happen. It's just that that piece of the brain has, you know, uh, the right sort of functional structure to help support you in both tasks. So, you know, knowing where these overlaps are may well give you insights into what the underlying nature of the processing is. Um, that goes into various kinds of cognitive, uh, you know, cognitive processes. Um, but is that always going to be the case? You know, again, it, it's going to depend on, I don't think there's a general answer to this question, because as I mentioned already, I think that sometimes when a circuit is incorporated into different, uh, uh, you know, larger functional uh, uh, partnerships, sometimes it may be doing the same thing. And, and then if you can uncover what that is, that may well give you a clue as to what kind of processing is, is going on in a particular cognitive function. Other times, because of the way the partners interact, it might be doing something different. And so knowing that it's involved in A and it's also involved in B may not actually give you much insight because it's doing something different in A than it is in B. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think this is one of those, <laughs> um, it's going to depend on the details as to you know, what kind of insights the knowing the neural architecture will give you for the, the actual cognitive uh, processing. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure if this is already taking things uh, one step too far, but uh, would there be any possible implications for clinical practices that involve the brain? Well, I think so. Um, and certainly, we talked about rehab a little bit already. I, I think you know, one possible implication of this is um, for for rehabilitation, post-brain post, post -brain injury rehabilitation. If you know that typically a particular part of the brain is used across five or six different functions, and you lose one of them, right, whether it's a motor control function or, 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 or something else, if those other, say, four or five functions uh, um, are, you know, you still retain those, this, so typically in rehab, you ask the person to do the thing that they have a difficulty doing. Yeah. Right. This suggests that maybe um, an alternate possibility for rehabilitation is to ask them to do the things that they still can do, but that typically would use the region that was 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 damaged. Mm. And so you might right by by exercising these other skills, you may well sort of indirectly help um, uh, to rehabilitate the patient. Um, uh, because you know maybe it's going to start stimulating a part of the brain that's been that's been injured. So that's an hypothesis um, um, that would be interesting to explore. Uh, and you know, again, I'm not a clinician, so uh, uh, I do I do once in a while get invited to to you know clinical conferences to talk about this stuff. And so there is at least interest in the implications of this idea for things like rehabilitation. Uh, and that's one of the, one of the possibilities that that you may be able to design sort of indirect therapies 
by knowing what what sort of what the behavior repertoire of a particular part of the brain is. Um, and so yeah, that's that's certainly one one possibility. Mm -hmm. And could it also have some implications for, for example? clinical psychology or psychiatry? I mean, in terms of uh, administering drugs or certain psychotherapies? Yeah, this is an interesting qu question. I mean, the honestly, you know, the there's there remains a rather big gap in, in psychopathology in particular, right? There remains a rather big gap between our knowledge of mental illness and our knowledge of the neural underpinnings of that mental illness, mm -hmm. right? So you may be aware in the United States, the National Institute of Mental Health um, has has been trying now to implement to to enforce the 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 study of the neural uh, biological underpinnings of clinical disorders. Because right now, the mapping between, say, the DSM categories, the just diagnostic and statistical manual categories, and their neural underpinnings is just, uh, it's kind of a mess. We just don't, we don't really know very much. Um, one, and this is, not a, this is not a clinical implication, it's a research implication, but one implication of the framework that I've been pushing is that we're, like, we're more likely to find the root of disorders in in, in connectivity than we are in finding the region of the brain that's affected, right? So, so if it's right that, that normal behavior is a matter of finding the right sets of partnerships for, uh, for you know, a particular behavioral outcome, well, then disorders may be because those partnerships have gone awry in some way. And so what you, what you for research-wise, what you look at is you know, what are the functional connectivity structures that differ between uh, patient populations and, and you know, neurotypical uh, or uh, psychologically typical individuals? And there's some evidence for this, say, in, in autism. Uh, autism spectrum disorders seem to be marked by over-connectivity between some regions of the brain and, uh, and, and less connectivity than normal between other regions of the brain, right? So, so it's a, it looks potentially like What's happening uh, to to cause that disorder is is there's an abnormality in the in the pattern of connectivity. Now and it, so it may it, again I'm not a clinician, but it may well be that that's the kind of story that we'll start seeing emerge, say in other sorts of disorders, schizophrenia, um, depression, uh, you know, things that that we certainly would very much like to know to know more about and be able to treat. So it would move us toward more of a, an approach where we try to identify the neural networks that operate in a, in a given function yeah. instead of simply trying to pin down, okay, so this is the area of the brain that is responsible for, for example, emotional processing and uh, if it functions, if its function goes uh, astray, then we have conditions like anxiety, generalized anxiety, depression, and so on. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pleased to say that in the past decade, there definitely has been kind of a network revolution already uh, in neuroscience. Um, 
there, there are people are definitely aware that that that's where we're going to find the answers and is an understanding what the networks look like. I think we have to go a couple steps further than we've gone so far, and and really include uh, dynamics. So people find networks and then look at the dynamics of the network. But I think that the networks themselves are dynamic in the sense that the network the network of the brain is constantly fun- shifting. And there's been a little bit less, I mean, there's certainly lots of researchers interested in that, but there's been less attention to that. Uh, but I think we're moving in that direction, and, and that's going to that's gonna prove quite promising. Mm-hmm. Those dynamics that you're mentioning, are they related to things like the way uh, neurons are organized, how they connect with one another, yep. the neurotransmitters and receptors that we have present between neurons? or, or Yeah, I think, I, think, I think that the functional architecture of the brain is constantly changing. Okay. It's not a mess, right? It's not, it's not drifting. It's just that it, you know, it goes to configuration A and then to B and then to C and to D and but then it can come back to A, right? So these are these are recoverable uh, functional configurations. So so you know the human connectome project has been look here's how at least at the, at the large scale here's how the the network structure looks, and that's fascinating and really important information to have. Um, but it's only it's only part way to function because the functional connectivity. That is what pieces are acting together right now for this particular task. The connectome won't tell you that, right? That, that gives you the basic underlying sort of white matter architecture. Uh, but but there's dynamics at the level of multi-scale dynamics, at the level of you know individual synapses all the way up to large-scale networks, where different functional partnerships. So basically, there are different partnerships that form and then dissolve and then reform and then dissolve and it's it's at that level of the dynamics you know the functional dynamics of, of forming and and uh, forming different uh, functional networks that's that's where I think the the story is going to have to be told yeah so let's talk about one last topic and this is more of a general question uh, I, I asked you at the beginning questions about the evolution of the brain. So to understand how cognition evolved and how cognition works, uh, how do you think should we integrate disciplines for, uh, like cognitive science, neuroscience, psychology and others? Because sometimes they seem to uh, be doing things that are not really integrative or they, that it's hard to integrate them the several levels of analysis for example so how should we approach things well I, you know uh, integrating findings from and indeed creating interdisciplinary teams amongst members of these various disciplines is absolutely crucial to make progress and one of the reasons I moved up uh, to Canada uh, to become a part of the Rotman Institute of Philosophy is that that institute is is dedicated to fostering that kind of interdisciplinary or even transdisciplinary work. And so, yeah, it's absolutely crucial. Um, we need uh, computer scientists to help us understand, you know, what uh, what computations might be happening um, over time, what the, what the actual network dynamics might look like. Uh, we need biologists to help us understand you know uh, things at the, the you know the the level of, of cells uh, and uh, and chemicals 
Uh, we need developmentalists to help us understand, right, behaviorally, what what's normal development, what's abnormal development. Um, uh, you need imaging. Um, uh, you know, all, all of these things have to come come together. And you know, again, I you know, I mentioned the Rotman Institute, where 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 I am, is dedicated to that exact thing, right? That's that's the kind of raison d'être of of the organization. But I think, you know, uh, for the study of the brain in particular, I think people are, are broadly aware that that kind of interdisciplinary cooperation is going to be just absolutely necessary to progress. Um, you, you're, you know, there's just it's just too complicated a system with too many unknowns to approach it any other way. Mm -hmm. But do you think that there's any sort of approach already emerging to try to understand things at different levels of analysis and integrate them? Like, for example, how a particular psychological mechanism works and then uh, the, neuros, uh, uh, the um, neural structures that underlie it and perhaps even the genetics of it or... No, I, and I, yes, I think we have to try to understand all this. We're, we're never going to get beyond the need for specialists in the sense that people who work just on one very small, important thing and don't stray outside of that. That's just because in, in the sciences, uh, well, not just in the sciences, across the disciplines, the issues can be very technical, and to master those technical, uh, right? To master that technical challenge can take can take a lifetime of work. Where we've been less good um, is in supporting. I don't want to say generalists, but but supporting people whose careers are dedicated to trying to put pieces together, mm -hmm. right? um, and. That's that's crucial. That's crucial work. Someone who you know maybe they don't have their own lab, for instance, right? They don't dedicate themselves to the study of emotion, uh, or they don't dedicate themselves to the study of particular kinds of uh, of ion channels, or you know whatever whatever level. Uh, but rather they're sort of moving amongst and between uh, these various findings and trying to to tell the kind of big picture story. Um, one of the one of the things that's been uh, a really good development in sort of the philosophy of neuroscience over the past couple of decades, um, well, the ways in which philosophy of mind has become philosophy of neuroscience is that is that philosophers have gotten much deeper into uh, the actual biology, the actual science, um, and and so that's one place where there has been a sort of concerted effort to try to tell these stories that cross. Uh, you know, various uh, disciplines and cross various levels of analysis. So you have philosophers interested in, in understanding the under, uh, biological underpinnings of memory, but they're trying to tell a story all the way from molecules up to, you know, experience. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think, and I think we need, we need more uh, support for that kind of contribution. Um, even though, of course, the, the specialty work is, is uh, as crucial, but we can't, we can't, Make we can't make progress on the big questions with just the specialty work. We need to have the people who are dedicated to actually trying to piece everything together in in, in tell tell a broader story. Mm 
Do you think that one of the reasons for interdisciplinarity to be so hard to get uh, could be the fact that, for example, universities are organized in different departments and there's specialized journals for each discipline and subdiscipline. I mean, could that be a factor there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The, I mean, the, the structure of the sciences, you know, came from the assumption that there were different domains of knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, you then just organize yourself around these domains of knowledge. But we're increasingly recognizing that as crucial as it is, as I say, to generate and support specialists, it's also crucial to generate and support, uh, again, it's not a great word, but we can call them more like generalists. And we've been less good at that. And yeah, you're right. It's because of the departmental structure. Um, again, that's why I think institutes like the Rotman Institute, where I am, are so important because that's, that's designed to go across departmental uh, and even across different schools. So humanities and sciences and engineering and medicine. Um, and uh, the incentive structure is also a uh, problematic because you know, the tenure system relies on you establishing yourself as a specialist in a particular thing and then finding the people who can evaluate um, your work to in order to earn uh, tenure uh, and promotion and when you step too far outside of that model it you know it could be sort of damaging to your to your career because it's hard people don't understand what you're up to maybe or uh, people don't know how to evaluate it so, yeah, there's lots of, of things sort of uh, baked into the institutional structures as they exi exist now that that tend to militate against the kind of in interdisciplinary work that, uh, you know, that everyone agrees is crucial, right? It's just the question of how do you, how do you uh, generate the institutional support um, that is necessary to promote it? And th these, are, these are hard questions because there are resource use issues and there are evaluation sorts of issues and so on. Um, but as I say, I, you know, I think I think that I think the tide is shifting, um, and you know, Rotman Institute isn't the only uh, uh, institute of its of its sort that is recognizing the necessity of reaching across disciplinary and uh, and specialist boundaries. And so, you know, hopefully, over the next decades, we'll we'll see an acceleration of of what's already becoming a trend. I think. So, just one final question. Uh, in terms of the brain, how it works, how it evolved, are, the, uh, are there any big questions that you think we are close to answering? And if that's not a, if that's not a fair question, then the questions that you would like to see answered? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't... I don't, I don't know how to formulate a big question like that, to be honest with you. I, I, think, that, I think that we're still in very early days in the neurosciences, which makes it a very exciting time to be in this field uh, because, you know, things are very open. Um, and so, you know, the, the obvious big questions are things like, you know, consciousness, how, how, you know, how, how is that, how does that emerge? 
you know, from uh, the interacting structures of, of the brain and, and, and the position of an organism in its environment. Um, but stepping back, you know, uh, from, from, from that size question, I think one of the most important things that we're still a little bit unsure of um, is how we should even go about studying the brain properly. Um, uh, it wasn't that many years ago when, you know, everyone was super excited about neuroimaging because that was finally going to tell us what happened in each bit of the brain, right? And so functional localization, the assumption was modularity, functional localization. Um, and, uh, and so we thought, okay, great. What, now, we're, now we're going to be able to use this tool to figure out what each bit of the brain does. Well, as we've been talking about, it turned out to be more complicated than that. Yeah. And I think the you know the story is going to be about these dynamic, uh, interconnected, uh, constantly changing, configurational changing networks. Uh, but even that might not be the right story. And so um, we've got to we've kind of got to figure out well exactly what kind of system is it that we're studying, right? If it's not a modular system with dedicated parts, but it's this big dynamic synergy. What does that mean for how we go about actually studying it and relating neural uh, and relating um, neural dynamics to behavioral dynamics to perceptual information and so on? So in, in my lab, this is exactly the kind of thing that we're trying to figure out. But it's it, it's almost like we're doing a meta level study, right? Yeah. We're we're doing we're doing behavioral studies, but we're doing those to show to figure out whether or not we can actually do science that way. <laughs> um, <laughs> And it's, and it's based on an understanding that the kind of system that we're trying to study has a particular sort of dynamics that relates in a particular sorts of ways to behavior in, its envi in the environment. Uh, but that's an hypothesis about the nature of the system that uh, has yet to be borne out. And the only way it's going to be borne out is if we're successful right, in, in running studies on that assumption. So, I mean, another, one way to think about the recent history is the assumption was that the brain was a modular system with dedicated parts. So that's how we started studying it. We tried to figure out what the parts did. Um, and for you know many, many years, it looked like we were making progress on that. But then you look at, as I say, look at 5,000 neuroimaging studies, and it turns out the assumptions under which those data were gathered have been falsified by, that, by the very data that was gathered under those assumptions. Yeah. Right? And so that's where we are, and we're looking for replacements for that model. And networks are certainly part of the story. Um, uh, and I say dynamically reconfiguring networks, I think, is, is going to be part of the story. But we won't have um, a confirmation of that until we've gathered a bunch of data under those assumptions and see, and see where that gets us. Okay, great. So, Dr. Anderson, let's end on that note. Uh, before we go, would you like to mention where people can find you on the Internet? So uh, the easiest thing to do is to look at uh, the Emerge Lab website, emrglab.org. Uh, and that's, that's, my, that's my lab website. The link to publications uh, you can find there. Also, my, my, the other members of my lab. Um, yep, emrglab.org. Okay, great. So I will include that in the description box of this interview so that people can go and check your workout. It's very interesting. And Dr. Anderson, again, it was a real pleasure to have you on the show and thank you for taking the time. 
You bet. Great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel back in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with top academics and scholars from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. If you prefer PayPal, I also have links to that in the description box of the video. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please leave a like, share it and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett Perger-Larsen. Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Kintis, Ruth Gervoz, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassio, Arthur Coe, Zoop, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Deza Araujo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, and Yannick Punter, my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardis France, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rujewski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.